Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the World Bank's Teachers Podcast. I'm Elaine Ding. I work on the Teachers Thematic Group in the Education Practice at the World Bank, and I'm excited to be hosting today's conversation. We know that well-trained, well-supported teachers are one of the most important factors to student success. But do we know what instructional practices work best? In this episode, we will discuss recent evidence collected from top-performing educational systems that has stirred some debate about teacher-directed versus student-centered instruction. We're joined today by Lucy Crahan, an international education consultant, researcher, and author. She is the author of the book Cleverlands, The Secrets Behind the Success of the World's Education Superpowers, one of The Economist's Books of the Year in 2016, and author of a book on teacher career structures for the International Institute for Educational Planning at UNESCO. Lucy has also advised foreign governments on education reform at the Education Development Trust. Thank you for joining us, Lucy. There's a lot for us to talk about today, so let's dive right in. So tell us a bit about your book, Cleverlands. What led you to write it? And what are some key findings from it? Hi, Elaine. Sure. Firstly, thank you for inviting me on this podcast. So my book, Cleverlands, is based on my, my travels and my research to five of the world's top performing education systems. And that's based on the International PISA Test, which is the program for international student assessment. And so I spent about five weeks each in, in five different countries, in schools, often teaching, observing teachers, speaking to everyone, formal interviews and informal interviews, and also living with teachers as well. So the book is a, a summary of, of my findings in terms of how to develop excellent education systems that lead to children being successful and capable in terms of their application of their knowledge in reading, in maths and in science. So it's not just the teachers, um, but it's a, it's a system level expectations, being quite clear about what those expectations of students are, and then designing system policies and school policies to support all students to reach those expectations. The second big one is more the topic of, I believe, of, of this podcast, which is around pedagogy, i.e. how teachers teach. And most people, and I've tried this out, I think I give lots of talks, I often have audience participation, and lots and lots of people have some misconceptions about what's happening in these high-performing systems in terms of how they teach. And people often think quite reasonably that these very different cultural contexts must have very different ways of teaching. So just to give you an illustration of the countries that I went to, Finland, Canada, Japan, Shanghai, China, and Singapore, you walk into a classroom in Finland and you see, you know, the kids are wearing their own clothes, not school uniform. They call the teacher by the first name. There's lots of like sitting on beanbags in the corridors in between class. Whereas in Japan, it's all very much more formal uniforms, call a teacher sensei, which means teacher, they bow when he or she comes in. So on the surface, it looks very different. But what I found was the similarity in terms of the teaching approaches in each of these very different countries. I think that's a great segue to the topic of today's conversation, which is precisely on instructional practices and which instructional practices work best. We often, as teachers, administrators, policymakers, hear about the benefits of student-centered instruction and are told that, in contrast, teacher-directed instruction is 
far less effective. So could you walk our listeners through, first, what does teacher-directed versus student-centered instruction mean? Like, what, what is the debate? And what are the implications of your book and some of the research that you cite on this debate? So this is a, an, some enormous questions, but I'll have a stab at answering them. So in the first instance, the problem is that actually there is no agreed definition of these terms. People have different teaching traits or te- teaching practices that they attribute to these phrases of teacher-directed and student-centered. And that in itself is problematic because depending on which one you prefer, you will, you will lump all other bad practices with the one that you don't like. Mm-hmm. And it can lead to some really unhelpful debates. That said, there are, there are some differences. And, and what I've done in my, in my research, in my reading, is to try and identify some of the things which often underpin these terms. And I'll just take two which come up the most often. And I suppose there's two dimensions in which they differ. One is who's leading the learning in terms of who is making the decisions and controlling what happens in that classroom. So teacher-led would obviously be the teachers is making the decisions about what's happening in the classroom, whereas more student-centered is often more student-led in terms of things like students uh, choosing what tasks they want to do, helping to design the lessons. The other main way in which those two differ typically is around whether the whole class is doing the same kind of activity at the same time and more whole class instruction versus with student-centered Often the connotations of that are the students are all working independently at their own pace or working in small groups for extended periods of time. And where the teacher, you might have heard these terms, the teacher is more of a guide on the side rather than a sage on the stage. That's kind of a characterization of the debate. And obviously some people will disagree with, with what I've said exactly there. But broad brush, that's what people mean by those two things. And it's really interesting how you even introduced this question because you said that the teacher directed is less effective than the student-centered. And that's not actually what the research shows us. It has become almost a kind of a handed-down, given statement that, oh, well, what everyone needs is to be more student-centered. We need more student-led learning, more individualized practice. But actually, when you look at the research in particular, well, lots of different research, including the PISA data, it doesn't show that at all. And actually, it shows the opposite. Certainly, I'm not advocating a situation where you have a teacher just talking for a whole lesson. That is very poor practice. But nor is it a good thing to have a situation where the teacher sets up a task and students are independently learning on their own terms for a whole lesson either. The way they've gathered the data on this is that as part of those PISA tests, they also get students to answer a questionnaire. And in the questionnaire, they describe all sorts of different things that a teacher or students might be doing in a lesson. And they ask them to say to what extent they agree or disagree. And on the basis of that, they're able to generate these indices of different instructional practices. In 2012, where the main focus of PISA was mathematics, they had two indices that are relevant to this conversation. One was what they called teacher-directed practices, and one was student-oriented practices. And... It was actually quite remarkable and quite clear in terms of the results. And I'll just quote, if you don't mind, from, from an OECD paper in 2016 by Zara and colleagues, rather than me paraphrasing. So they find that student-oriented instructional practices have the greatest negative relationship with student mean mathematics score, both before and after accounting for other teaching strategies. 
And this negative association is statistically significant in every country and economy that participates in PISA 2012, except Albania. The more a student says that they have more student-oriented practices, by which they mean things like students working on their own individual projects for extended periods of time, um, extended periods of group work, students doing different work from their, from their peers, they do much worse. And they found that the same thing in three years later, where the main focus of PISA at that time was science. And there were different indices. There was a teacher-directed one and what they called inquiry-based teaching. But it was the same, the same kind of things that I shared earlier on about it being more about student-led learning, more about them doing their own thing. And students who reported having a lot of that kind of instruction did much worse than their peers. However, and it's very hard to summarize all of this research in, in a short space of time without losing some of the important nuance, but it's not the case that it's, it should be one or the other, but it is the case. Mm -hmm. If you look at this data and, and other data, that the balance of those two approaches needs to be more skewed towards the more teacher-led learning with just some of that more student-centered practices. So it's not the case of having one or the other, but it is the case of having the teacher predominantly in control of the learning that's going on in that classroom. What I think has gone wrong with the global debate here is that we've reduced teaching practices to just this one dimension of teacher-led versus student-centered. And so the problem there is often that it is too teacher-directed and that it's just the teacher mainly speaking and the students mainly listening. But the, the solution to that is not to switch that dial and go full-on student-centered and have students all leading their own learning and, and deciding what they want to do. It's to look at other dimensions as well. And, and PISA also looks at other things too. And the, just two briefly, if I may, that I'd like to mention. One is interactivity. So it's not called this in PISA, they call it the cognitive activation. But more broadly speaking, interactivity is really important. The quality of the discourse in the classroom. So how much is the teacher asking questions of the students? How much are the students asking questions of the teacher? How much of a class discussion is there? Do the students have opportunity to talk to each other? And then another dimension that's really important is adaptivity. So is the teacher changing what they're doing based on whether or not the students have understood? Are they slowing down the lesson? Are they repeating explanations and things like that? So I think we need to lean into the nuance. And some of these catchphrases that come up all over the place around teachers being a guide on the side or a sage on the stage are really quite unhelpful. This has been really interesting to hear about not only what you saw in the systems that you visited, but also the insights from data that comes from this really large data set from PISA. And I think what you mentioned on interactivity and adaptability, that these are characteristics that one can see in classrooms that are so-called teacher-directed, and one can also see in classrooms that are so-called student-led. So I, I think the point on you know, not to use these as all-encompassing catchphrases, but really looking deeply at what is actually happening in the classroom. A lot of our listeners, I think, would be interested in hearing how broadly do these observations and data apply? Because I think, generally speaking, by default and, and maybe, you know, an error, we apply a lot of what we know about educational pedagogy to primary education by default. 
And I think there might be some listeners here who are asking, what about early education? Or what about upper secondary education or even education for adult learners? Do you think that these observations apply to a larger educational age range? That's a really great question because, of course, different things are appropriate for learners of different ages. And the, the piece of data is based on 15-year-olds. So actually, that is the end of lower secondary school. But based, based on both my observations and also the kind of the cognitive science that explains these findings, that these, the, the same thing applies to younger children as well. Not early years, but, but upper primary school age it is important to have more teacher-directed teaching in terms of, and I should not really describe what that actually looks like in high-performing systems, in terms of the teacher having a very clear idea of how they want the lesson to go, having various different activities and different sections to a lesson, which include the teacher explaining, along with some group work, class discussion, and some individual work. So that's what I mean by predominantly teacher-led. I don't mean the teacher just talking. But that is appropriate for upper primary and lower secondary. The, the early years and the and the upper secondary are different. And in, in early years in these high-performing systems, it is much less structured. So it is much more student-centered or student-led for younger children. And upper secondary, it, in terms of what I've seen, it's not that different, but I think it could be. And the reason is that the, the cognitive science that explains these results in a nutshell is that Human beings, including children of all ages, have a limited working memory capacity. So working memory is essentially where we process new information, like a mental sketch pad where we solve problems. And it's quite limited in how much you can take in. And therefore, it's quite easy to get overloaded if there's too many different things going on. And so when you have predominantly student-led learning, where students are trying to discover information for themselves, that can quite easily overload children's working memory, which is why you need more teacher guidance. However, for young children, the kind of things that they're learning are the kind of things that we have evolved to learn. So speaking, for example, social interactions with their peers, having a sense of number of what is more and what is less, as opposed to mm -hmm. you know, adding fractions. And with, with those more evolutionary basic things called biologically primary by evolutionary psychologist called David Geary. The same thing doesn't apply because we are designed to pick those things. However, when it then comes to learning the kind of the knowledge that we have cultivated over thousands of years as a species, we haven't naturally evolved to learn to read. We haven't okay. naturally evolved to learn to do algebra. So that's the kind of thing where we do need guidance from teachers because otherwise we do become overloaded with our working memory. The reason I say it could be different in upper secondary is because the way to get over these limitations in our working memory is to use the knowledge that we have in our long-term memory. So once a child has understood something or a young person has got a pretty good grounding in a particular area of knowledge, then they are able to then extend that knowledge for themselves through their own discovery. They just can't do it when it's brand new and they don't have anything to hook it into. So when you have more expert learners, i.e. when they are much older, then it becomes appropriate again to have students doing more kind of discovery-based learning. But it's that chunk in the middle from, from kind of mid-primary school to the end of lower secondary where you do need much more teacher guidance. It's interesting that you mentioned the example of reading because I think you've actually touched on another really hot button debate right now, which is about how reading skills are learned. 
And what we're hearing from reading experts more, more and more loudly, I guess, now is that unlike speaking, which is sort of an innately learned skill, reading is not an innately learned skill. For example, you need to know phonics. You need to know the rules of phonics to put together letters and know what sounds those letters make together. So reading requires explicit and direct instruction to learn. And I think this example applies very nicely to what you said about students in primary to sort of early and even upper secondary years who may benefit more from more teacher-led instruction to learn these explicit skills and knowledge that were not evolutionarily adapted to learn. So it's a really interesting insight and analysis that brings on the angle of cognitive psychology to explain how students learn best and, and as an extension, how, how instruction should be organized. So what's the implication of your finding for the work of those who oversee curriculum design and teacher training and such? What would you advise them to consider or what would you advise them to change? We know more and more about how psychology relates to and informs or should inform pedagogy. We know more and more about how children learn. And I'm really excited by that as a real, as a kind of new science of learning we as teachers and teacher trainers can tap into. So that would be part of it. But part of it would, I suppose, just be just being aware of the increasing body of research that shows that children mm-hmm. are not able to discover a lot of things for themselves. Or if they are, it's, it's only the children who, have, who already have a lot of the knowledge because the kind of backgrounds they come from that are able mm-hmm. to cope with those pedagogical approaches. And actually, it's our most disadvantaged learners who most benefit from a more, more explicit teaching style. Though I would say, and just just to add on what I was saying before, like that it should all be explicit teaching. And sometimes it is appropriate to kind of get students engaged or hook in their curiosity to start off with something that they can't solve. And as it is also very appropriate and really important for them to have an opportunity to apply what they've learned in creative ways, in collaboration, you know, in projects. I'm not anti-project. It's just a matter of chronology and not be too wooed by the ed tech influence in education because I do think that some of this idea that every student should be learning at their own pace with their own computer has been driven by the potential for for edtech companies to make a lot of money through this. Thank you so much Lucy for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure having you on our podcast. If you haven't already, please make sure to check out Lucy's book Cleverlands: The Secrets Behind the Success of the World's Education Superpowers. Thank you listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe to more from the World Bank Teachers Podcast, available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until next time.